In last week's show, we talked about eight reasons or eight things about the Bible and what it had to say about slavery. Last week, I shared with you that this week we'd be looking at some skeptical challenges that skeptics like to bring forth with regards to slavery. Join us on the Real Issue podcast as we look at these skeptical challenges and a whole lot more. to the Real Issue Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Last week, we talked about what the Bible had to say about slavery, and I gave you eight things to think about with regards to it, and every one of those had to do with what, I guess, what we could say is the image of God had to say about it. Now, I shared some things with a co-worker with this, and they kind of took issue with me, but then I think when I laid out the fact that when we looked at the fact that how God sees the image of God in a human being, and the fact that, number one, slavery was pervasive throughout the entire ancient world, and that God outlawed, the second reason I gave you was that God outlawed the slave trade. Thirdly, slavery was more likely an indentured servitude. So, you know, the image of God was not compromised in any way with regards to, say, foreigners or or just human beings in general. The fourth thing I shared with you, the fact that the masters couldn't harm the slaves. That's right. You know, unlike the antebellum South that we find ourselves in, um, you know, we, uh, we hear a lot about slavery and we have a whole lot of issues. In fact, that the ghosts of slavery in our culture, um, you know, there's this whole thing. When we take a biblical view of it, we see that the masters could not harm their slaves, and that was based on Exodus 21, verses 26 and 27, where we read that if a master injured a slave, that slave was to go free. A fifth thing we had that we addressed also was that slavery was only for seven years. Once the seventh year was up, they could go free. And then runaway slaves um, also received safe haven. Back in the antebellum South, as I shared with you uh, last week, that you know this, the it, it was totally different. Slaves were considered property. People were considered people in the image and likeness of God were considered property and not seen as people who were created in the image and likeness of God. And then seventhly, actually, slavery is not God's ideal. Okay, and then eighth. We're talking about the full personhood of the slaves. We just wrapped the whole package up last week and shared with you the fact that um, the fact that a person is creating the image and likeness of God. 
And the fact that because they're creating an image and likeness of God, in the Bible, the personhood of the slave was never, ever, ever compromised. So this week, we're going to talk about some skeptical challenges to some of these. And um, there are basically, well, two, two areas, the two, two things, that, two points, I guess you could say, where skeptics often challenge. And I mean, I'm talking about this is, this is an ethnic challenge or ethnic skeptics to slavery. And I'm, I mean, I'm not, I'm not for slavery. I just want you to know. I, I don't think it was a good thing. It never, ever was a good thing, particularly how it happened in this country and how it happens in other, uh, other countries around the world where humanity is, is the, the image and likeness of God and the personhood of, 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 of that person is, is compromised. I'm not for that at all. Okay, just let the record state. Okay, so the two points I want to talk about today, and I don't want time to get away from us here, but number one, masters could not harm their slaves, and number two, slavery was only for seven years. Now, there are some good reasons for this, and I, I, that's what I want to do is I want to bring up that as far as, and again, we're talking about not good reasons for this in the here and the now, but based on what scripture uh, has recorded for us. Now remember, just because something is mentioned in scripture does not mean that it's prescriptive. You have to take it in the context in which it is placed. Okay, there are a lot of passages in the historical narratives of the Old Testament that are not prescriptive. Like going and killing the Canaanites. That was descriptive. Also, with regards to concubinary or slavery. You see, folks, you have to take the passages of Scripture. And I'm going to have a show on this. Things that Six things that I heard Frank Turek teach that you're not supposed to do and that we need to stop as skeptics, as Christians, whatever you are, wherever you are in, uh, between, uh, between, uh, on, with the belief line in, in between you, you know, you just need to quit it. Skeptics cherry pick and Christians take passages out of context, particularly with, when it comes to issues on the moral law. As far as, well, you know, hey, we're under grace. We can do anything we want. The scripture does not preach license. In fact, if you take license and put an ending to it, you get licentiousness. I'm digressing here. Let's look at these issues. Number one, um, masters could not harm their slaves. The skeptic argues and and um, I think they're, they're totally dishonest in this by stating that God forbade, um, that for God forbade harming slaves. And skeptics will point out when they, they're skeptical of this. They say, you know, well, look at Exodus 21 and verses 20 to 21, which, which means that when a man strikes a slave, male or female, with a rod or the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. 
But if the slave survives a day or two, he cannot be avenged, for the slave is his money. So, does this text support harming the slave, as skeptics suggest? Now, I don't believe it does for a handful of reasons here. First, you have case law versus God's ideal. Notice the fact that you have the context. Uh, the, this is a, uh, a text in the Old Testament that is essentially what is, we would consider case law. Now, what I mean case law is you have lawyers have law books with cases that are in it. God is laying down the case for if this were to happen, then this is what is to happen. This is what not is to happen. Now, God's ideals reflect his desires as his universal standards that are true in all places and, yes, folks, all times. For example, all people possess intrinsic value because they're made in the image and likeness of God. There's that image of God thing again. God's ideal is that we treat people with dignity and respect and love them as we love ourselves, based on Leviticus 19 and verse 18. Now, case law, on the other hand, is not universal in scope but only refers to specific situations. And in most instances, these case laws assume that moral, that moral concessions have been made against God's ideals. Now, you can typically spot a case law because they usually start with the words if or when, like our text that I just mentioned in Exodus does. Now, because this is text, this is a text where we're going and seeing a, a case law, which by definition assumes that someone has sinned by not meeting God's ideals. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that image of God passage, as well as Leviticus 19 and verse 18. It is absurd to suggest that this text supports harming slaves. Now, this law is simply trying to make the best of a less-than-ideal situation. There's a second thing we need to talk about here, and that is the full personhood of slaves. We talked about this last week, and I want to bring this up again because this is very, very important. In addition, this text also in Exodus presupposes the full personhood of the slave. We read in Genesis 9-6 that the killing of another human being resulted in the death penalty because God made man in his own image. Now, many think that the death penalty is cruel and even outdated, but notice the underlying reason for it is that people are valuable in God's sight. And when we looked at that text in Exodus 20:21, 20, we read that if a man kills a slave, he shall be what? Avenged. So the killer, the slave owner, was to lose his life for killing another human being. Now, the Hebrew word avenge, nakam, always involved the death penalty in the Old Testament. Thus, this law treats slaves like full humans that they are 
and by demanding life for life. There's a third thing we want to talk about here too with regards to this passage is no having the, the, the no murderous intent in this in this whole idea. It also appears that the man's intent was not murder in this case because he uses a rod which was a tool for discipline instead of a more traditional murder weapon like a sword or a spear or dagger. More than likely, the slave was guilty of some serious wrongdoing, possibly theft. The law didn't condemn discipline for serious infractions. For example, corporal punishment was universally practiced in the ancient world, but it did forbid disciplining the person so severely that they died or had permanent injury. There's another one, another thing in this passage that we want to look at. Notice that it says when they survive, if they survive, this is talking about surviving a day or two. There's also dispute on what it means that the slave survives a day or two. Some think that the slave dies after a couple days. Now, if this is true, that the aggressor did not receive the same nakam death penalty because it's obvious he did not intend to kill the man as opposed to if the, die, if, if the, if the slave died right away. In this case, his penalty is that he loses out on a year's work he paid already for when he paid off the man's debts. And this is why the text says, for the slave is his money. So there was a monetary value seen upon the person, but at the same time, that person was not, that slave was not considered pieces of property. Now, others argue that verse 21 contrasts verse 21 and that the slave doesn't die at all. Instead, he requires medical treatment for a few days, which costs money. And per the case law, two verses earlier, the owner had to pay for the medical treatment, Exodus 21, verses 18 and 19. Furthermore, the owner would have missed out on the slave's work for a few days. Now, these reasons are why the text says, for the slave is his money. Whichever the case is, in either case, the owner pays what is equivalent to a steep fine. Now, it seems obvious that the law's intent was to discourage any kind of harm to the slave by hitting the owners where it counts, which was their wallets. Then we also need to consider the context. When we look at the context, finally we need to consider it in a full context by reading a couple verses later. In Exodus 21, verses 26 and 27, we read, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Now, there is no dispute. There is no dispute of this text if the owner permanently injures the slave and the slave gets his freedom. Even though the owner already paid off the slave's debts, this would be equivalent to suing for damages today. But in the end, it's disingenuous to suggest 
that the Old Testament supports mistreating slaves. Even this objectional text suggests otherwise by prescribing the death penalty or serious fines for harming slaves. We'll go to a break and we'll come back with the second one about slavery was only for seven years, and that's another passage out of Deuteronomy. So we'll be back in just a moment. Apologetics seeks to give credible answers to curious questions. What's the best college prep Christian worldview camp out there? I have the privilege of speaking with some great speakers at Summit Ministries, and I'm so thankful for what Summit has done to reach out to our youngsters and to prepare them to be college ready. I want to encourage you, if you've never heard of Summit Ministries, and if you've got some kids that are growing up, to really get them ready for college by sending them off to a summer intensive with Summit Ministries. What I love about Summit is it brings together world-class speakers. It brings a bunch of kids together and it hits on a whole array of topics that allows the kids to leave with a crystallized vision of what the Christian hope offers for the world, what the Christian message is for the world. It's one of these camps that kids get together and they talk about what really matters. One of my mentors, Robert Lewis, has said before when he was raising his kids, this question would sort of sit before him in his mind. Well, what question am I talking about? Well, first, let me tell you. He said, I would picture my kids driving away in a U-Haul truck one day. And as they drove off with a truck full of stuff, I was haunted by the question, what are they really leaving with? In other words, are they just leaving with some material things or are they going into the world with a worldview? Are they college ready? Are they prepared to go into the world and make a difference for Jesus Christ? If you are looking for a place to send your kids that can provide a transformative vision for their life and help them to see that Christianity is the real deal, then look no further than this great ministry called Summit Ministries. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Hazen, we're living in a time where a lot of people are confused about Christianity or other faiths for that matter. I mean, they'll say, what distinguishes Christianity from other faiths? When you look at other faiths, they'll claim miracles, they'll claim healings, they'll believe that God leads them by providence, they'll say that God answers their prayers, they have special revelation. So how do we really feel confident as Christians that we've got the right truth? You know, we, we actually use the mind that, that God has given us to explore these claims. And it's not that hard. In fact, what I, one thing I've discovered is, is people of other faiths and even religious studies experts and experts in world religions hate the idea of actually probing those claims. You see, in other words, if a Buddhist makes a claim or a Hindu or a Muslim makes a claim, you know, or a Mormon, for goodness sakes, don't probe the claim. I don't investigate it because you'll be disappointed or it's not going to give you the answer you're hoping for, or it really can't be probed because it's so mystical and, and otherworldly. Christianity is very different in that it invites investigation. It says, 
come and explore this and see if you can understand. And again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 makes this outrageous statement. If Jesus did not come back from the dead, a Christianity is just not true. Your faith is worthless. Go do something else for goodness sake. There's no other religion that takes the probing and the investigation so seriously. Christianity can withstand that kind of investigation. Other religions just simply can't. Okay, we're back, and I want to thank you for praying for Kathy and Christine. They left yesterday for the Summit Student Conference. Uh, they will be in Tennessee, and I just want to let you know that um, next week we'll have a show for you, and then the following week is kind of up in the air because I will be up in the air on the 10th. I'll be flying out to Nashville for a long weekend starting on the Wednesday to go see my daughter graduate and um, then we'll be driving back driving them back home so we'll probably either have a pre-recorded or I will may I may have my message um, let's see that is on the seventh at Thrive Christian Fellowship I may just put on the message that I'll be speaking on living with clarity in a world going sideways. I think I may do that. There'll be no introductions to the podcast. I'll just have that for you. Uh, maybe some introductory music and then go from there. But uh, I just want to let you know ahead of time that's probably what's going to happen. And then when we get back, it may be a late, um, late put online. Uh, it all depends on what time we get on the road and all of that. I may put it on a day earlier. I may not. I'm not sure how all that's going to flesh out, but be sure you'll have something to listen to from us that weekend of the 12th and the 13th of July. So stay with us on that and we'll, uh, will be uh, ready to roll. I think we're going to deal with the new age after this because we're seeing a lot of the new spirituality. And that is a worldview I know that my daughter's going to be learning about. It's called the new spirituality. But we're going to talk about it from the context of the new age. And I'm going to see if I can try and get a YouTube Skype interview with a friend who has been involved in the new age. I have not let them know yet. But I'm going to try and line that up for probably one of the one of the weeks coming. So that being said, let's move on. Now, we've been talking about the the whole idea of these skeptical challenges, and I dealt with the one that the fact that the the slaves could not be abused or they couldn't be harmed. The next one here, the second one, is the fact that slavery was only for seven years. Now, in the antebellum South, they could not they would not let their slaves go. In fact, William Wilberforce, that great statesman who was influential in eradicating or having the slave trade eradicated uh, later in his life, he was basically feeling like he was 
he was basically not feeling, but he was actually like told that uh, he was taking the money out of the out of the slave owners. So you know, it's man's greed. It's this. It's sinful man going and abusing human beings. Slavery in the Old Testament was only for seven years. Now, when we look at Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 12, notice that it says that if any of your people, Hebrew or men, sell themselves to you and serve you for six, in the seventh, you must let them go free. Now, the objection, I, I kind of alluded to it when I introduced this segment here. The objection that is often received seems pretty valid, and that is that it was only true of Israelites. The treatment of foreigners, therefore, was cruel and unjust, while an overwhelming majority of slaves in ancient Israel would have been Jewish and foreign slaves existed who did not have the seven-year or the same seven-year mandate. In the text, uh, the support this claim, Leviticus 25, verses 44 and following, all the way to oh, verse 46, says, As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you inherit as a possession forever. Now, what should be our thinking on this text? Does it suggest Israel could treat foreigners like property? Again, really, folks, I don't believe this is the case. And there's for several, several reasons, some of them I mentioned in the earlier segment last week. First off, there was no kidnapping that was allowed. We have to take into account Exodus 21 verse, six, 26, um, Exodus 21, verse 16, which says, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, he shall surely be put to death. God did not allow kidnapping anyone from forcing them into slavery, meaning that these foreign slaves described in Leviticus 25 must be acquired by different means. They either voluntarily came to Israel looking for a better life. A Jewish life, for example, was vast improvement over other parts of the ancient Near East, or they were POWs, or prisoners of war. Now, it should be obvious that Israel simply could not allow POWs to run rampant around Israel. After all, these were men who had recently tried to kill the Israelites. No one in their right mind would let a POW go free. That would be letting some, like somebody from Al-Qaeda, who was actually involved in the bombing of the, the towers on 9-11 of 2001. They were the ones who orchestrated. They were not in the planes. You know, we should let them go free, right? Let them go free in the United States, right? Yeah, you're going to say no, of course not. Of course, there's going to be debate on whether that actually was uh, an act of terrorism. I believe it was. But you get my gist, okay? You don't let POWs go free or you don't let your enemies go free in your country to terrorize your nation. Now, let's talk about the case for the foreigner. We also have to consider this because 
we also have to consider the law as it pertains to how foreigners were to be treated. Now, for, if you would, consider two texts with me. First one is Leviticus 19, verses 33 to 34. It says, When a sojourner sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and so you shall love him as yourself. Does that sound familiar? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds New Testament, doesn't it? But actually, it's Old Testament. You see, the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the New Testament. And of course, that's another show altogether because people like to, to, to like like to uh, debate that one too. the The second text is love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, folks, these texts should give us pause before we jump to the conclusion that the Israelites had freedom to treat foreigners poorly. These texts seem to suggest the exact opposite. We even see some of these laws played out in Ruth, uh, who was a Moabite, and she was able to glean from Boaz's field, and Boaz was an Israelite. So why didn't foreign slaves get the same opportunity of freedom as the Israelites? This brings up to the next point. Only Israelites were allowed or could own land. God had set apart the land specifically for the Israelites. In Leviticus 25, verse 23, we read, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. This is God speaking. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Why wouldn't God allow them to sell their property to foreigners? It is because he had the world's salvation in mind. You see... Israel needed to establish a context free of pagan influence where they could live as God's people under God's rule. This context was necessary for Israel's Messiah to come one day, perfectly fulfill the law that nobody else could keep and die once for all for the sacrifice or the sins for man. This was very similar to what the sacrificial system. In fact, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of the cross. This point about the land is significant because if one couldn't own land to support him or herself, the only option for survival was slavery, meaning offering freedom to a foreign slave every seventh year would have been pointless they would have to simply have sold themselves right back into slavery in order to have food, clothing, and shelter. Now, again, we have to consider the context here. The context is very, very important. Sometimes you can go and you can create, as atheists do in cherry-picking these passages, they go and they proof text and not take into consideration the context. And as Christians, we need to be very careful when we go and set up a dogma for ourselves or for the a body of believers or a small group or a club. We need to make sure that we don't take the passage out of its context. Now, when we read what we read in Leviticus 25 verse 47, it indicates that foreigners still found ways to gain their freedom and become independently wealthy. The passage reads as follows, If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, 
and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of this stranger's clan. In other words, it doesn't seem like the treatment of the foreigner is all that bad. They've always found ways to purchase their own freedom and make a living for themselves while living amongst the Israelites. Now, if you and I are tempted to think that this is unfair treatment of foreigners, I want you to bear in mind, keep in mind here, that every nation shows privilege toward its own citizens. Rightly so. If you're an American citizen and you get benefits with all the political wrangling going on with immigration, this is really interesting. If you're an American citizen, you get the benefits that non-Americans don't get. So what does that mean today? It shouldn't mean anything different than today or as it did back then. Think about that. The same was true in ancient Israel. There's nothing unjust about Leviticus 25, 44-46. Now, another point here that I want to bring in is that slavery was necessary. Now, some still protest this and ask, why didn't God simply outlaw slavery altogether? He didn't because it would have led to financial collapse. Slavery, though not the ideal, was the way most people in the world provided for themselves and for their family. It was not God that instituted it. It was God that allowed it so that people could take care of themselves and their families. It would have been, well, I guess you could say it would have been equivalent, let's say, to taking a less ideal job today. <laughs> Wow. I won't, I won't chase that one for me. Um, yes, you would rather have a different job that paid more money or didn't require as much manual labor, but it's better than being unemployed and your family on the street. Think about the millions of people who would have been worse off in our country if we got rid of hard labor and low-paying jobs. The death toll would be catastrophic. In the same way, ancient slavery was a way to provide people for a lower class in ancient Israel and in a way was necessary for their survival. Let me conclude this and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. I, I want you to know, first and foremost, that God believes the person to be in, with intrinsic value and that is the gist of our ministry when we share the gospel with somebody who is antagonistic toward the Christian faith. Every human being, it is our view at the Real Issue Apologetics Ministry and the Virginia Center for, for Public Christianity that we treat other people as people who are created in God's image and have intrinsic value. It is perfectly clear that God was not pro-slavery and slavery in the Bible was not the ideal. And it is a far cry from slavery that comes into yours and my mind today when we think of the word. Those who have used the Bible to justify slavery in the past have therefore distorted Scripture's teaching and distorted Christian teaching. 
what they're using the Bible for to support slavery is not biblical. And it's not biblical Christianity. So I just want you to know that as well. You know, it's interesting to note that the modern abolitionists and slave rights leaders like William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King Jr. have led the charge against slavery and radical racial injustice by appealing to the scriptures teaching that every person bears God's image. Rather than promoting slavery, it seems the Bible was the foundation for abolishing it. Thank you for listening to The Real Issue Podcast, the podcast arm of the Real Issue Apologetics Ministry and the Virginia Center for Public Christianity. I want to let you know that this is a very tough issue, and this issue came up, this question came up um, not too long ago in our small group, when one of the people in our small group asked during our Q&A about what the Bible had to say about slavery. So that was the purpose for these two weeks, to lay out this issue. We've done some studying on this. And we're, we're creating and forming a position paper with regards to uh, this whole issue. So I'll have that online sometime, and I'll make the announcement on, an, on a future show when that position paper is up so that you can pull it down, and um, we'll, we'll have that for you. Keep uh, Kathy and Christine in your prayers. Keep us in your prayers this week as we are actively involved in ministry and also working a full-time job that I don't like. And uh, pray for alternatives for me. Uh, to be able to take care of hungry women and children, mine, and uh, be able to do what God has given me the passion to do, is that is to serve you and to equip you for engaging our culture. And also, if you're a skeptic, thank you for listening to this show today. Our purpose for you is to put a stone in your shoe so that you might think about why Christianity is true. So until the next until next week, we'll definitely have a show next week. We'll start a series on the new age and what it is, and then uh, we'll be trying to figure out uh, the next steps for our show. We might do. Uh, I might record a double. I just thought of this. I might record a double show that day, and then um, we'll uh, we'll have that for you, and I'll I'll, po- I'll predate it. So hopefully that'll work for you. So, that being said, this is Rob Lundberg from the Real Issue Apologetics Ministry and the Virginia Center for Public Christianity. I want to thank you for listening, and I've already done that, but I want to thank you again. So, until next week, uh, keep us in prayer, keep my wife and daughter in prayers, and we'll keep you in prayers as you go out this week to be his ambassador. But more important, as you go out, think about what you learned this, these last two weeks about how people are created in the image and likeness of God and how people have intrinsic value. That is the key for letting them know that you love them with the love of Jesus Christ so you can go out and give them heaven. We'll be back with you next week. Lord bless. <laughs>